Thanks for clicking play on this episode of PageCast, a book-centered podcast series brought to you by Jonathan Bull Publishers. In this episode, author and historian Bill Nassen chats with author and member of parliament Michael Coddo regarding his comprehensive biography of Harry Oppenheimer. In the first full-scale biography of Oppenheimer, based on unrestricted access to his subject's private papers and extensive interviews with family members and close associates, Michael Cardot eschews both the corporate hype and the political propaganda to produce a vivid, fully rounded portrait. He brings to life the places, people, events and relationships that shaped Harry Oppenheimer's long and rich career at the intersection of both politics and business. Cardo also tackles thorny subjects and questions regarding legacy and Oppenheimer's complicity with the oppressive racial order of the past. We hope you enjoy this episode of PageCast. Welcome to this PageCast. My name is Bill Nassen. I'm a retired historian moving ever further into the twilight zone at present. My guest or fellow discussant is Michael Cardo. He is the DA MP, the Shadow Minister of Employment and Labour. He's a writer in the South African Parliament, not famous for writing or reading, so that makes him, I think, extremely exceptional. And he's the author of an earlier fine biography of the South African Liberal Party leader, founder member rather, Peter Brown, who was a prominent figure in the 1950s. The book we're discussing today is a biography of a sort of big man in a period where biographies of big men are increasingly rare. The book is really a stupendous biography of one of South Africa's most iconic capitalist titans, uh, Harry Oppenheimer, entitled Harry Oppenheimer, Diamonds, Gold and Dynasty. And I think gold is quite good in the title because many economic historians today are telling us that the country is going through the end of its life as a producer of gold. It's massively researched. It's written with Michael Cardo's characteristic flair and clarity, thoroughly absorbing. It tells you everything you might need to know about Harry Oppenheimer and his world, and then quite a lot besides. Like all good biographies, I think it illuminates not only the subject, but also the times within which he lived. So, Michael, let me start by asking you why you've written this. Thanks, Bill. It's good to be chatting to you. Well, I was approached to write the book by the late Jonathan Ball. He said to me uh, one day over one of our regular breakfasts, why don't you take on this project? And I was very excited by the prospect because Harry Oppenheimer's life really straddles the whole of 20th century South African history. He was born a few days after the National Convention was launched in 1908, which culminated in the Act of Union in 1910. And that was the birth of the South African nation, the first birth of the South African nation, the Union, as it then was in 1910. And Oppenheimer died at the ripe old age of 91. He lived to see South Africa's transition from white minority rule to non-racial democracy, the adoption of our final constitution in 1996, and he died in 2000. So he really covers the whole span of South Africa's rich and complex history, 
And he's a fascinating figure because he was so central to so many aspects of that history. Not only was he a corporate titan who was intimately involved in the financial, economic, and commercial history of South Africa, and indeed through the companies which he led, Anglo-American and De Beers, South Africa's industrialization, but also he was a member of parliament for almost a decade in the 1950s when the National Party won the 1948 election, HFO, as he was ubiquitously known in the uh, corporate empire of Anglo-American, himself became a member of parliament for the opposition United Party. So for me, it was always going to be extremely interesting to try and get a grip on what I call HFO's personal patchwork of power, which extends into all these facets. And the other reason why I really wanted to do this book is because there is no pre-existing biography of Oppenheimer. There's a dual biography of Harry Oppenheimer and his father, which was published almost exactly 50 years ago in 1973. But there is no full-scale comprehensive biography of Oppenheimer. And this was going to give me the opportunity to get stuck into the archives, to get to grips with his personal papers, and for a historian to be able to do that and mine a treasure trove of archival material that hasn't been tapped before is always a very exciting prospect. Yes, I'm not going to ask you, um, it's very tempting to do this, to ask you how long it took you to write. I mean, it must have taken a number of, a number of years. The book doesn't say that it's an authorized biography, but could I ask you a bit about that? I mean, sure. In the sense that you have, you've obviously had open, it's been open sesame, you've had access to all the papers and on top of documentary work, you've done all these interviews which enliven the book. Um, but there's always that, it seems to me, there's always a trick or a trickiness about writing biography where you've got family consent to do it. Yeah, so I'll answer your first question first, which is about how long it took me to write the book. It took me much longer, I'm sure, than the publishers wanted. So in the end, it took me six years. I started researching this book in 2017, and I mentioned in the introduction why that particular year was of interest, um, and that's to do with the whole issue that exploded around Bill Pottinger and its campaign against white monopoly capital. And also, it was the centenary in 2017 of the formation of the Anglo-American Corporation. So it took me six years. It involved a lot of research. And of course, I wasn't doing it full time. My job is as a member of parliament. So I had to work on this project in concentrated bursts, which presented challenges of its own, because as you yourself will know, being intimately familiar with archival work, you really need to immerse yourself in the archive to get a proper understanding of your subject. And it becomes that much harder when that immersion isn't an immersion, when you are interrupted and you have to work on something in fits and starts. So I suppose it took me a long time to get to grips with Oppenheimer, to understand who he was. And I'm glad that I actually did take six years and not shorter because that length of time really gave me, I think, the opportunity to understand the fullness and the complexity of my subject. 
Uh, as far as authorization goes, yes, it's true that I had the cooperation of the family. So Harry Oppenheimer's son, Nicky Oppenheimer, and his daughter, Mary Slack, were very much involved in granting me unfettered access, not only to Harry Oppenheimer's papers, but indeed to all the family papers that are kept in their magnificent library, the Brenthurst Library, which is on the Brenthurst estate. In fact, the Brenthurst Library was established by Harry Oppenheimer in 1984. And then, too, of course, I conducted interviews with family members, with Harry Oppenheimer's children, with his grandchildren, too, and his close associates. And it helped me very much in having the cooperation of the family in being able to get those interviews. People were obviously much more inclined to talk to me, safe in the knowledge that this project uh, carried the blessing, for want of a better word, certainly the cooperation of Harry Oppenheimer's children. And I do reflect in the acknowledgments that, you know, the seal of authorization can be a double-edged sword, at once empowering and constraining. But I can honestly say that at the beginning of this project, when I met the family, uh, Nikki Oppenheimer, Mary Slack, and the grandchildren, there was never any suggestion that I should burnish uh, the Pater Familius's image. There was never any suggestion that this should be a, a PR exercise. And of course, that certainly wasn't the kind of book that I wanted to write. As a trained historian, I wanted to get to grips with Oppenheimer, the man and his legacy, the, the good and the bad, the positive and the negative. And my view is that without the cooperation of the family, I wouldn't have been able to produce what I hope is as intimate a portrait that I have. Absent that cooperation, I would have been entirely reliant on newspaper articles, secondhand sources, and I just really wouldn't have been able to produce what I hope is a rich and vivid portrait. Yes, and you've succeeded in that very well. I mean, one of the strengths of the book for me is the level of domestic family and the family world detail, which is quite exceptional. Um, without going into psycho psychobiography, um, where you get into the bathroom and the bedroom, which some new psychobiographies do. I mean, one of the things that strikes me about Oppenheimer as a figure is that is the contrast between him and the classic story or classic fables of Africana capitalists and businessmen who, you know, exemplify the rags to riches story. Um, you think of Gertie Ferreira growing up above a fish and chip shop in Graaf Renet and then becoming, you know, the big fat cat of Rand Merchant Bank. And Oppenheimer is a very sort of different kind of figure. I mean, grew up in, in business and politics, kind of, you know, privilege and wealth was his mother's milk Indeed. from his very birth. And that makes him... I mean, an interesting figure, and potentially, at, at one level, it could make him a rather dull and bland figure, but one of the things you've succeeded in doing is lifting him out as a, as a really complex uh, and interesting personality. And would you care to say something about that? I mean, I'm struck by the, you know, the stuff about manifest destiny, how early 
that was imbued in him. Well, it's, it's certainly true that this isn't a rags-to-riches story. On the contrary, I mean, Harry Oppenheimer was the heir to a very significant corporate uh, endowment and patrimony. His father, Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, had formed the Anglo-American Corporation in 1917. He would also managed to take control of De Beers in the 1920s. And when Sir Ernest died in 1957, Harry was the heir to a formidable inheritance, industrially, philanthropically, and in so many other ways. But, you know, the, there's a sort of the old adage goes that the, the first generation makes the money, the second generation spends it, the third blows it all away. But in, in Harry Oppenheimer's case, he did inherit, along with all these wonderful other things, uh, a streak of creative genius. He was able to both stabilize, solidify, and massively expand the inheritance. So he did this in two ways, essentially. Firstly, he managed to take Anglo-American beyond being solely a mining concern with interests in gold, platinum, and diamonds. He was also absolutely key to Anglo-American being a driver of South Africa's industrialization in the 1960s. So the Anglo-American empire, or the octopus as its detractors often refer to it, spread its tentacles throughout the industrial economy in the 1960s. And that was really signaled by the formation of Heifelt Steel by Anglo-American in 1964. But Anglo also developed interests in property, finance, construction, hotels, motor cars, you name it, the whole gamut of the South African economy. It really became a huge outsized player um, to the extent that it completely dominated the South African economy and it accounted at one stage, I think, for you know, 60 70% of the Johannesburg Stock Exchange's market capitalization. On the other hand, what Harry Oppenheimer did as the heir to this empire was to expand it internationally. So under Sir Ernest Oppenheimer, Anglo-American had really been a sub-Saharan African concern with interests in gold and diamonds and copper spread throughout the African continent. But what Harry Oppenheimer did, he, he was much more of an internationalist. He, he was more cosmopolitan in outlook than his father. And what he did was take Anglo-American to all the continents around the world. He expanded Anglo into Australia in the 1960s. Anglo had various footholds in South America by the 1970s and 1980s. And astonishingly, well, astonishingly to me, Anglo-American actually had become, by 1981, through its subsidiary company, Minorco, the single largest investor in the North American economy, which I think was an incredible feat for a mining company headquartered at 44 Main Street in the dusty streets of Johannesburg. You mentioned earlier Oppenheimer's contradictions. I mean, on the one hand, there's this liberal humanitarian posture and philanthropist. On the other hand, they're the gold mines resting on the sort of degradation of, of migrant labor. And I'm always, I was struck reading your book 
about Francis Wilson's pioneering study. When was that? 72, some, somewhere around there. About labour on the gold mines in which he demonstrated that the wages of black miners had been stagnant between 1911 and 1970. And I wondered whether you'd comment on Oppenheimer's ability or the way in which he straddled, though, the contradictions of his, um, on one hand, sort of outwardly progressive views, on the other hand, uh, a deeply exploitative labour system. Look, I think it's absolutely fair to say that Oppenheimer was a politically complex and ambiguous figure. He was the major funder and financial backbone, really, of the Progressive Party when it was formed in 1959. This was the breakaway from the United Party, the the liberal opposition to the National Party. And he was a great source of financial succor and also moral support to people like Helen Sussman, Colin Eglin, Zach de Beer, were all close personal friends of his. But, you know, Oppenheimer had a couple of lines which he liked to trot out. And one of them was, you know, I I may seem like a liberal in the South African context, but really at heart, I'm just an old fashioned conservative. And it's probably entirely accurate to say that he was a very conservative sort of a liberal. I don't know whether you would call it a, a conservative liberal or a liberal conservative, but that that is the case. And yes, to many of his detractors, there was a startling disjuncture between his public pronouncements slamming the National Party government and what happened on his mines where black migrant laborers lived and worked in often appalling, abysmal conditions. Uh, the mines were, you know, often... Uh, notorious for their poor health and safety record. And I go into these issues in the book and try and navigate through this complexity. I I think it's probably also entirely right to say that HFO was an enlightened capitalist. He was certainly ahead of his peers. Anglo-American was certainly more at the forefront of ethics than many of the other hidebound mining houses and Anglo-American was the first mining house to recognize black trade unions. You mentioned uh, Francis Wilson's study in 1973. Well, obviously around the time of the Durban riots and the industrial tumult that was going on in the early 70s in South Africa, this was a turning point of of sorts for Oppenheimer. Uh, The economy was contracting he realized that things had to change. And this is when Anglo starts desegregating the workplace. It um, sets up a committee to look into the living and working conditions of its black mine workers. This translates into increased black wages. And Oppenheimer also starts reaching out to the doyens of Afrikaner big business and saying, look, we have to come together and exert pressure on the government to exercise reform, which ultimately leads to the formation in 1976 of the Urban Foundation. But to circle back to your question, this book certainly is not a whitewash of Oppenheimer's legacy. It really looks at this this complex legacy in all its manifold dimensions and and tries to understand how this man who was so central to the progressive cause, and I use the word progressive with a capital P in the sense of his being 
the mainstay, financially at least, of the Progressive Party, was also, at the same time, somebody who absolutely attracted the ire and the venom of the left, of those who demonized him as the exemplar of a white monopoly capital. Interestingly, that's a, a phrase which has currency today <laughs> among both the left and the sort of radical economic transformation faction of the ANC. But, but something similar to white monopoly capital as a term was employed by the Afrikaner nationalists in the 1950s and perhaps something that that's, uh, we could explore mm. too. Mm. Perhaps you could, yeah, pick up on that theme. So, the vilification of, of Oppenheimer as the embodiment of English capital, English money. So, what I say in the in introduction is that in the 1950s, when Oppenheimer was a member of parliament for the United Party, the opposition to the National Party, he was demonized by the Nats as the embodiment of die Geldmach, money power, but also as Hochenheimer, which was an old anti-Semitic trope with earlier origins than, than Oppenheimer. It actually, I think, stretches back to early 1900s. But at any rate, Hochenheimer was the embodiment of British Jewish finance capital. And Sir Ernest Oppenheimer had been caricatured as Hochenheimer in the 1930s in the Afrikaner nationalist press by the cartoonist Bunzaya. This was at the time of the, the gold standard crisis and all the backroom dealing that was going on between Jan Smuts and Tilman Roos in the early 1930s. Anyway, two decades later, Harry Oppenheimer, the son, is also depicted as Hochenheimer. Hochenheimer enjoys a revival of sorts. And really, this, this trope, this cartoonish figure is the embodiment of everything that Afrikanerdom, nationalist Afrikanerdom, dreaded and detested and regarded as a threat to the folk. But there are resonances between die Geldmach and Hochenheimer and the employment of white monopoly capital many, many decades later by the, the hard left of the tripartite alliance and those proponents of so-called radical economic transformation within the Congress tradition. And what I say in the introduction is that in order to understand somebody like Oppenheimer, you, you really can't reduce him to this cardboard cutout figure, this kind of cartoonish demon, this phantasmagoria of Hochenheimer segueing into white monopoly capital. That really is a very simplistic, base and narrow way of looking at this man. And what I hope this biography does is present a much broader perspective on him than these narrow lenses. Well, you do. I mean, the book's neither a hagiography nor is it a hatchet job. And I think you do the best kind of biographical job of something that's magisterial, all-encompassing, and judicious in balancing aspects of, of someone's life. You're talking about Afrikaner sort of capital and so on, and I wonder whether you could comment a bit on material in the book where you've written about this very illuminatingly about Oppenheimer as um, a particularly far-sighted sort of political fixer or understanding what the exigencies of historical circumstances were demanding. So 
in an earlier period he helped uh, linkages with Africana Capital and then later of course in the 1990s and beyond with BEE and that of course was touched on in the extract from your book in the Sunday Times I think early early this month could you care to expand on that yes well he was a very pers- uh, politically astute figure that's for sure I mean mm. it was often said of you know Oppenheimer that he would have actually preferred to stay on in Parliament and had it not been for the death of his father in 1957, he would have been likely to pursue a career in politics and in Parliament. People often said at the time that he would have made a great Minister of Finance, that he was a natural successor to Janni Hofmeier. So his political instincts were very good. As far as relations with Afrikanerdom were concerned, I think HFO realized in the 1960s that there needed to be some kind of rapprochement between the titans of English and Afrikaner capital. And in particular, up until that point, Afrikaners hadn't been very involved in the gold mining industry. And so when the company General Mining, in which Anglo-American had a sizable stake, was going through a difficult patch in the early 1960s. He saw this as an opportunity to bring representatives of the Afrikaner capitalist, big capitalist class, on board. And obviously, I should hasten to add that this wasn't entirely driven by philanthropic reasons at the time. There was a certain section of Afrikaner business interests that were making great strides into diamonds and coal. And obviously, the Oppenheimer empire had always had almost complete dominion over diamonds, both their production and distribution. So anything that potentially threatened that cartel, HFO took very seriously. Anyway, to cut a long story short, he persuaded a certain group of people to forsake their interest in diamonds in exchange for becoming involved in the gold mining industry. And this led to the tie-up in 1964 of a small Africana mining house called Federale Mainbow and General Mining. And this really inaugurates a period of closer cooperation between English and Africana capital. It exposes Afrikaner capitalists to the challenges of the gold mining industry, exposes them to the challenges of dealing with the government through the Chamber of Mines, and ultimately it opens up the path for a coming together of English and Afrikaner capitalists to begin exerting pressure on the National Party to start a series of reforms. You see, Oppenheimer had always been convinced that apartheid and capitalism were fundamentally irreconcilable, that they couldn't coexist, and that apartheid was absolutely unworkable. And I think there was a growing realization among this Afrikaner capitalist class of which I speak throughout the 1960s and certainly into the 1970s of that very fact. And it leads to a close cooperation between Harry Oppenheimer and Dr. Anton Rupert, who were good friends and who worked together on various philanthropic projects. 
and their formation jointly in 1976 in the wake of the Soweto uprising of the Urban Foundation really is a key moment. It's, it's a turning point in South African history because what the Urban Foundation does is that it provides very kind of level-headed, pragmatic policy alternatives to apartheid and it really shows quite compellingly to the National Party government that this ideology of theirs is absolutely unworkable. And the Urban Foundation is central in the promotion of or the creation of a black middle class in the, in the 1970s, all of which helps to create this environment in which political change can take place. Then for the much later period, and bear in mind by this time in the early 90s, at the time of South Africa's transition to democracy, HFO had long since retired. He retired as the chairman of Anglo-American at the end of 1982 and of De Beers Consolidated Mines at the end of 1984. So he was an elderly man by that stage, but he was formidably well-connected and he exercised an enormous degree of what I would call soft power, really. And he saw in the early 1990s how potentially dangerous it would be for South Africa to be ruled politically by a new governing elite, which is to say the new black elite, who had political power but who were economically disempowered. So I think he himself saw echoes between the early 1990s and the mid-1960s. He said, you know, if I saw an opportunity for unbundling, unbundling being the breaking up of these big, bulky conglomerates that combined mining, industrial, and all sorts of other interests into more leaner, slimmed-down companies. He said, if you know, an opportunity presented itself through unbundling to give black South Africans a stake in the economy, then Anglo should absolutely take it. And this is what leads ultimately to the Jonic and JC ideals in 1996. Anglo-American um, breaks up Johannesburg Consolidated Investments into three companies. JCI is retained as a mining house, but it's denuded of its diamond and platinum assets, which obviously go to De Beers in the case of diamonds and Anglo-Platinum in the case of platinum. So the Anglo Empire does keep the crown jewels for itself, but it does a deal with Black Economic Empowerment Consortia uh, on the sale of JCI and Jonic, which is really one of the very first black economic empowerment um, transactions. So, so Anglo played a central role in the early embryonic form of BE, which was later legally codified by the ANC. As we draw to the end of this um, enjoyable discussion, I've just, I have a sort of comment and then a question. I mean, one is I emerged from reading this, you know, magisterial life of Oppenheimer, thinking about who do, you know, what does he amount to? I mean, is he, how do we see him? Is he um, South Africa's version of a Germany's Krupp or America's Henry Ford or America's Andrew Mellon or a British, um, a British Beaverbrook or, or Roots. So that's one sort of comment I, w I wondered about how, we, how history might seem in decades to come. And the other one is what kind of 
capitalist titan he embodies or exemplifies? I mean, in a way, is he a sort of long-distance runner rather than an Elon Musk or a Steve Jobs or, you know, who might be seen as meteoric sprinters? The sense I got from the book is that you have this very zealous, very dedicated, smart figure who toils away industriously at acquiring some things, disposing of others, diversifying along the way, surrounded by people he he trusts. Whether that's an adequate way of summing him up? I think so. I think you're quite right. I don't think he was a sprinter. I think he was a marathon runner. I think he was in it for the long haul, both in his commercial life as the expander of the Anglo-American empire, but also politically, you know, the, the politics of the long haul was an expression used by Harry Oppenheimer's great friend in politics, Colin Eglin, and I, I think it's probably a good way of capturing HFO's approach to both his political and his commercial life. He was a very methodical person. He was highly rational he was very analytical, and in a way that actually is an interesting counterpoint to his father, with whom he shared a very close relationship. So Ernest Oppenheimer and, and Harry Oppenheimer enjoyed what I characterize as an almost telepathic connection. Certainly Harry Oppenheimer had no conception that there was any sort of a generation gap between the two of them. They, they were very like-minded and similar in certain ways, although not temperamentally. So Ernest Oppenheimer was this kind of swashbuckling, pirate-like pioneer. He was exuberant. He operated on guts, on impulse and instinct, whereas Harry Oppenheimer was much more, I think, introspective, thoughtful, patient, probably conservative, for want of a better word. So that's a very long way of answering your question and saying that I think he was a, a marathon runner rather than a sprinter. As to his legacy, I think that he is a towering figure in South African history. I don't think his legacy is straightforward and uncomplicated. I think it is full of contradictions and ambivalences. And I reflect on those throughout the book, but especially in the introduction and the conclusion. In the final conclusion, I think this was certainly something said by Nelson Mandela when he was eulogizing HFO, was that he made a formidable contribution, not only to South Africa's industrialization, but also to the transition to democracy. He, he was someone who had always believed that apartheid was unworkable, that there needed to be some kind of alternative vision of non-racial democracy. And Oppenheimer was somebody who worked very patiently and not always in a straight line towards that goal. Yes, I think that's very well put. In wrapping up, I, um, I have to ask you the question which I think all biographers are asked or should be asked. Do you like Harry Oppenheimer? I do. I, I found him... A fascinating figure. I became completely obsessed with him. I think he started dominating my my waking and my sleeping thoughts. And I certainly admire his intellect and accomplishments, but that admiration should by no stretch of the imagination be mistaken for kind of a, a slavish 
sycophantic view of his role in South African history. As I've said earlier throughout our conversation, it's, it's not a straightforward legacy that he left. There are lots of gray areas. But in the main, having got to know him through his letters, his diaries, and of course through interviewing his family members and close associates, uh, but especially from the letters and the diaries, I think he was a highly intelligent individual. I think he was very perceptive about people. Um, he was certainly perceptive about politics. And I personally find those admirable qualities. Harry Oppenheimer, Diamonds, Gold and Dynasty, published by Jonathan Ball, is available at all good bookshops around you. It's only April, but Christmas isn't far off. So go out, buy one now and buy copies for your loved ones at the end of the year. Thank you very much, Michael. It's been a most stimulating discussion. Thank you. Thank you, Bill. It was great chatting to you. Thanks for listening to this episode of PageCast. We love hearing from you. So if you'd like to get in touch, please contact us at pagecastpodcast at gmail.com. Until next time, keep reading and listening.